Father, I pray that this word would be powerful amongst us this morning because you give us ears to hear it and hearts to understand it. Lord, I pray that all of the things said here, done here, thought here, would be pleasing in your sight. And if they are not, if they are not consistent with your word, let them pass away and never be heard from again. We pray in Jesus' name. We know what could be used for tremendous good. All this technology in our society, the internet, social media, all those types of things, often, instead of being used for good, is being used to purvey despair. There are wars and rumors of wars. In Ukraine, in Israel, we forget the battles that take place in places all over the globe people in danger, even in their churches, places like Nigeria, where they don't know from Sunday to Sunday if this would be the day that extremists would come and capture and kidnap their children and kill them from their worship services. There's political chaos. We're told that if certain things don't happen, there will be havoc wreaking upon our land. There have been, as you know, especially you from Canada, we're so glad to have you back, recent medical scares, confining people to their homes. There are still people three years later that have confined themselves to their homes for fear that they would transact a deadly disease. There are financial tremors. There are those who will warn us if we don't invest the right way, we're going to lose everything we have. The list goes on. And you know what people are doing as a result. Drug abuse and alcohol abuse is at record levels. I was reading an article this week that said gambling addiction, particularly among young people with their access to gambling on the internet, is at record highs. Even teenagers going to a gambling anonymous. Suicide rates, all-time highs in the United States. The homeless problem in every community. Even on my vacation, we recognized through every major town we went through, there would be those who were homeless. Immigration, of course, another crisis on our door. And there's a lot of desperation. Both real desperation, those who are truly without hope in the world, and the promoted desperation of those who would promote chaos and give no answers of hope. When you are desperate, when others are desperate, to whom should we turn? The answer is here. There's two desperate people in this passage. One is a well-known, respected individual. The other is an unnamed woman. Both of them, in their context, turn to the last place they could seek for hope in their situation, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. It's because in this context, we're reminded by the author Mark, with the words given to him probably from the Apostle Peter, who is an eyewitness to these events, that Jesus is the one who has the power of authority. He is the one who has the power to save, and he has the one who has power even over death. First of all, the power of authority. Here is this guy. His name is Jairus. He's well-known in his community. We assume this is probably in the town of Capernaum. Remember, Jesus had started out doing ministry in Capernaum, and then he had crossed the sea and done a little bit over there among the Gerasenes, and then he drove or came back on the boat and came back to this side of the sea. 
And you see these contrasting seaside reactions. You have two sides. One was the Jewish side in Capernaum. The other was the Gentile side where he healed a demoniac and exercised the demons from that man. Of course, if you know the story, all the demons rushed into a herd of pigs, went off the cliff, and the man who had been wild and uncontrollable and was now in his right mind and a believer in Jesus. On the Gentile side, when they saw what Jesus had done, there was great fear, and they requested him to leave. They didn't want their economy upended when they saw the destruction of these swine in the ocean. They were scared to death when they saw that when no one else could possibly control this man with superhuman strength and wild, incredible, awful things proceeding from him, now in his right mind, it scared them to death. Then you see the Jewish side. He has a reputation there. He's been healing people. He's been doing amazing and incredible things. And the people there are thronging upon him because they want access to his power to do miracles. But in this man is an unlikely source of the recognition of Jesus' authority. If you know anything about the situation, you know that the last time Jesus was speaking in the synagogues in Capernaum, he did not get a good reception. In fact, the people there, many of whom knew him or knew him by reputation, knew his family members or others, when they encountered him and what he said in the synagogue, some of them had a burning hatred for what he said. And in that area, one of the synagogues there, they wanted to throw him off a cliff. And yet here is one of the moderating elders of the synagogue who has come to him with his reputation his wealth and all those things, his daughter is on her deathbed. She's 12 years old. She, we don't know what her illness is or what the situation is, but he knows that she's dying. The words from the Greek indicate that she's in her last days or hours. And he comes with the posture of falling to Jesus' feet. In our culture, we don't do that very much, do we? When we go to the doctor's office and we want a cure, do we fall to the doctor's feet and say, hey, please help me? Or when we go to our boss, do we fall at his feet in that way? No, we don't, we don't use that posture. And yet Jesus' authority here, in their culture, their understanding of authority is when someone has authority over you, the posture sometimes is just as important as your words or other things. And so he fell down at Jesus' feet, recognizing the authority of Jesus in this situation. And he gave a plea. In fact, the word here, verse 23, he implored him earnestly, saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hand on her so that she may be made well and live. He implored Jesus to help his daughter. Now, a couple weeks ago, when we looked at the last text before this particular one, we looked at that word implored. It's actually the word that's used sometimes for comforting. It's the word that we often use for the Holy Spirit. It's the verb for paraclete, paracaleo. And in this context, it means to ask or beg or implore earnestly, as it's described here in this text. Remember here, already, verse 10, 12, 17, and 18, that word is used. The demons begged Jesus 
to let them go in this herd of pigs. The people of the Gerasenes across the sea had begged Jesus to leave their region. The one who had been exercised of the demons begged that he might be a disciple of Jesus and follow Jesus. And here is a synagogue elder, a father. We're told by one of the gospel writers this is his only child at his wit's end to find how he could preserve that child, the last thing that he could do, and in his desperation, he implores earnestly to Jesus. You see, sometimes I think we as believers living in our day-to-day lives in our wealth and comfort of 21st century Western culture and society, we don't understand sometimes what it means to implore and beg earnestly because all hope is gone. But here's the situation. His daughter is dying. There is no hope left except Jesus. We often ask that question, don't we? Who is in charge? In our country in history, perhaps you remember Teddy Roosevelt who said to carry a big stick, right? You have Harry Truman who said the buck stops here. And there's a sense in which when we get to these political situations where we want to elect candidates who have authority over us, we want them to show their authority and demonstrate it, and we want somebody who's in charge. But you know presidents cannot deal with disease or fix marriage or provide a job. They can't heal a dying child. They can't deal with some of the things on our day-to-day lives. They can be the most authoritative person. They can look the most in charge. Even our bosses at work who are more intimately involved in our lives than those far off in Washington or in the, the seats of government in our state. Even those individuals cannot do these things that Scripture says Jesus can do. Jesus Christ is Lord. This guy comes to Jesus because he recognizes, even in his hopeless desperation to save his daughter, Jesus, if he wants to, can do something about it. Verse 24, he went with him. Jesus responded. But there's something that happens here. They're on the way to the house of Jairus and his family with the daughter, and they get interrupted. And so this is kind of like what we call like a little sandwich here. There's a miracle within a miracle. And and it's not just Mark compiling these things together because Matthew and Luke treat it the same way. And here it is. They're on the way to deal with the situation with Jairus, the respected and known uh, moderating elder, one of the, the group of rulers in the local synagogue. And this woman comes along in this crowd and throng of people, and she reaches out and she touches this garment of Jesus, perhaps his tassels on his clothing. Think about these two desperate people. One of them has a name. For all of history, we will know him by Jairus, his name. He is reputable. He is someone who is respected in his society. In fact, he is one of the most perhaps well-known individuals in the community of the Jewish people in Capernaum. And then you have this other lady. She's given no name, just like so many people in Scripture. We know from the circumstances she is rejected 
in part because she is unclean. She has a real need. She's a desperate woman. Here's the circumstances. It says she suffered a discharge of blood for 12 years and has suffered much under many physicians and has spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. Here was her need. She was long-suffering and without hope. She had exhausted all of her medical options of that day. In fact, it's likely that she had even tried all kinds of different remedies given not just by physicians, but by everybody who had any kind of opportunity to give her, you know, try this concoction or do this. And that's what some of the physicians did anyway in those days. Try this, do this, do that. Some of it was medical or chemical, but some of it was just wise tales. She had tried everything and she would exhausted all of her finances. She had nothing left. She was without hope of solving this particular problem. But not only that, she was now an outcast by the nature of her ailment. You see, there's something to be said for, for them to tell us this kind of disgusting situation with her. She has this discharge of blood she's had for 12 years. She's probably in a very weak, weakened condition. Probably lacks a lot of iron and other supplements. But the outcast part of it is this. She's unclean, at least by the standards of the Jewish law in Leviticus. I think I printed out on the outside, on the other side of your outline some scriptures from Leviticus 15, 25 through 27. It tells us what happens if a woman has a discharge like that. She is unclean for the entire time she has this discharge. This woman has been unclean for 12 years. You know what that means? If she even sleeps on a bed, that bed is considered unclean. If she touches somebody else and they know about it, then they would consider themselves unclean until they could wash themselves in the evening. In fact, she is now ineligible for marriage if she is of marriageable age. She is unable to have social contact with anybody. She is completely an outcast from Jewish society. And she's come to the last place where she could possibly get help. And so Mark reveals to us a revealing of her faith. First of all, it's a great faith. She says, if I even touch his garments, I will be made well. But it's also a misguided faith. Because after all, on one hand, we know this is kind of a magic idea. You know, if I just touch the right things. And you know, there were times in scripture where if you touch things uh, that belong to Jesus or belong to the apostles or whatever, there were miraculous things that took place. Yes, that's true. But the problem is in this magic touch and so forth, she is seeking the benefits that Jesus has to offer. But she's not necessarily seeking Jesus himself. Notice she does not even seek to get his attention. All she wants to do is get healed and touch his garments. And she says to herself, if I do this, I'll be made well. But Jesus here 
in this misguided faith that this woman has. He recognized whatever it is, you know, how is it that a throng of people coming and pressing around, the indication is, you know, they're elbowing each other, they're touching each other, they're trying to make their way through this crowd of people. You know how it is. Perhaps it was like that when you're trying to come through the door to worship this morning. And you accidentally rub by some people, and so his disciples said, well, why are you asking? Who touched you? You know, everybody's touching you. We can't get by without it. But evidently, he's, he recognized that something happened when she touched him. There was more than the physical. There was spiritual power that went out from him. Maybe this is why Jesus occasionally had to go uh, for rest, was because the draining nature of the spiritual state of all of these things and his healings and his teaching and all those things. But it's interesting what he does. He doesn't just say, oh, you know, that's wonderful. I'm glad somebody has had some help. He says, who touched my garments? He looked around, verse 32, to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. You know, it's interesting. There's really a requirement here of a profession of faith. That's what's taking place. Jesus doesn't just want to heal her in her particular situation. He wants her to tell everyone around. You have to understand what this is to this woman. You know, women were really, you know, really hesitant to, to speak in public in front of other people to begin with. But then to have to tell the embarrassing tale of her outcast and her embarrassing problems for 12 years and her hopelessness and, and then just the, the silly thing that some people would think, to think that if you just came up and touched Jesus' garments, you're going to be healed, but nothing else could do that. For her to, to vocalize these things in front of a crowd of people is rather incredible. Over all things, he has the power to save people. I think I shared a little bit of this story with you before. I had an individual who came to me years ago, and he struggled with pornography in his life. It got to the point where his marriage was on the rocks, and he thought his wife would leave him, and he came to me for help. And I knew that he was coming in order to have his marriage saved. He wanted the benefits. But when I sat down with him the first time, I told him, now, and I'm not going to share his name. Now, I want you to know, friend, someone I've known for years now, this problem that you have, do you want to solve this problem in order to save your marriage? Or do you want to solve this problem because it is sin against the holy God? And that you want to turn from that sin, ask him for forgiveness, and not doing it anymore, seek to do what is right in the eyes of God so that your relationship with God will be changed and you will be saved from your sins regardless of whether or not your wife comes back with you. You see, Jesus is more than a magic gene. If you're going to Jesus just to solve your problems, 
Yes, he is Lord. Yes, he can solve your problems if he desires to do so. Sometimes the problems we have are there for other purposes than for us to just suffer or whatever. We don't know God's design that he's going to solve every problem in our life, but we do know this. Jesus has the power to save you from your sins and from the punishment of your sins in order to give you the peace that passes all understanding. That is not just peace with one another, but peace with a God who is at enmity with you until you turn from your sins and believe upon him. You see, Jesus is Lord and Savior. He's done more than help this woman with her 12 a year ailment of a discharge that has ruined her life. Now he has told her, your faith has saved you. But that's not even the end of the story. That's kind of the little sandwich miracle inside here. Remember, we still have Jairus taking place here. And the circumstances are deteriorating. You can imagine, here's Jairus. His daughter is dying. He's come to Jesus for the last hope. And here they are walking through this crowd, and he gets stopped. He's got to deal with Jesus asking, who touched me? And he's, I, I can just imagine Jairus thinking to himself, well, who cares who touched you? You've got a place to go right now. And they're, they're going down, and he's, he's dealing with this, you know, who touched me? And then there's this whole thing with this woman coming and telling him the whole truth. This woman, you know, this is taking minutes or longer. This is a crucial time. Uh, the, the clock is ticking on his daughter. And the circumstances have deteriorated so much with these heart-wrenching delays that now there's this heartbreaking news. Your daughter's dead. And of course, everybody knows. That's it. He can't help now. No physician can help. No medicine can help. Nothing normal, natural can help. Why trouble the teacher any further? Matthew, in fact, when he describes this particular article in his memory, his eyewitness account, he said that uh, this child was dead from the beginning. But here is what Jesus says. This is a challenge. This is the heart-pounding challenge that he gives to this individual. Do not fear, only believe, only trust. Trust what? She's dead. How can he possibly help now? And this is a true challenge, isn't it? To believe that God can do the impossible. You know, everybody tells us in our society not to look for anything supernatural anymore. Just look at all the natural stuff. In fact, once you get to a certain point, faith is just silly, right? That's what the world wants us to believe. They'll respect someone who has faith up to a certain point. But here are the astounding conclusions of this miracle. It says he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion of people weeping and wailing loudly. Now, why does Mark, Matthew, and Luke, why do they tell us about this mourning? It's an illustration to tell us this child truly is dead. In their culture, in their society, they not only mourned when someone died, but they were expected to hire people to mourn for them. They were professional weepers. 
They were those musicians who were called not just to help with the worship team or play in a band, but they were to play dirges at the funeral services and at the events of the death of a loved one. In fact, if you were the poorest person in town and your wife died, you were expected at least to hire two flutists and a, and a mourner. This was their culture. So this is indicating this child really is dead. There's no doubt about it. It tells us in all three Gospels, she's dead. So this is the challenge to the mourning crowd. He says to them, she's not dead but asleep. Now, is he using the euphemism here for death? Or what is he saying here? You know, it leaves open some interesting ideas of what exactly he means here. Maybe he has some inside information they don't understand that, you know, he needs to revive her. But the idea here is she's, for all practical purposes, she's dead. The physician that would come and, and declare her dead would say, yes, yeah, she's dead. And Jesus says, but it's not the end. And then, of course, what does the crowd do? They laugh at him. They jeer him. They deride him. In fact, they make fun of him. They say, you are ridiculous. So, so here it is, the, the guy in, the, in their town that has been causing all kinds of commotion, that entire crowds are flocking to him because he's done amazing and powerful things. On a coin flip, it seems, they'll just turn on him to say, you're an idiot. And what does he do? He pays them no attention. Sometimes that's the best way to treat a jeering crowd, isn't it? To just ignore them, to not pay any attention. And then here is the resurrecting power. He takes this small group inside, Peter, James, and John, and the parents. Everybody else is put outside, all the mourners, the flutists, uh, the professional weeper, all the other family members, extended family who might be there, all the neighbors who gathered together to mourn this child's death. And he simply takes her by the hand. Now again, taking her by the hand, this is a personal touch. Jesus has been doing this now in many ways. He, he touched people who were lepers. He has, the woman who was unclean touched him. Now he is touching this corpse considered unclean. Jesus is, is basically blowing up the whole concept of touching unclean things because he is so clean that he makes the unclean things clean by his touch. And he says, little girl, arise. But the personal touch has a double meaning here. He's using the mother tongue of this family, Aramaic. The words that this little girl would have grown up with and known the most dearly. Now, she probably knew several languages, unlike us crazy Americans that only know English. But in her heart language, we say today, Jesus said, little girl, arise. It wasn't some hocus pocus. It wasn't some fancy thing. It was just the word of Jesus. And she got up and she walked. And you know, it's interesting. Remember, the, the challenge to this man, Jairus, was even though he received the news that she was dead, he said, have faith. Don't fear. Just trust. And yet, even at that moment, what is the reaction of those in the room? Both the father and the mother, and assumedly, Peter, James, and John, they're the only ones in the room. It says here, 
they were immediately overcome with amazement. You know, it's funny, the English word we get from this Greek word is the word ecstasy. This was the ecstasy of the witnesses. It was as if they were in a completely foreign or different plane of reality. They were totally unexpecting this to happen despite Jesus' call for faith. They were totally surprised. You know, I do that too. Even though faith is only often respected to a certain point, I think sometimes when something happens and the preached word of God in a worship service touches somebody to the point that they want to turn from their sins, I'm shocked. Because on an everyday level, do we expect every week somebody to come to us and say, the word of God has challenged me to change my life. We go by week after week in our Sunday services and in Bible studies and devotions and in our prayers and all those other things, and we go by this, and then something happens where somebody we've talked to or somebody we've been in contact with comes to faith in Jesus Christ as a result of our faithfulness and the proclaimed word, and we say, wow, that's amazing. I didn't expect that to happen. And what is Jesus telling us here? Trust. I know the previous pastors that have served this church are preached last week for me while I was on vacation. And I know at times Art and Sharon have said when they came to this church, it was in a, a terrible situation. It was practically a dead church. And they were talking about how in the world were they going to pay the salary that they needed to pay this man that was moving here from across the country and the idea was that Sharon told this committee, what is the name of this church? Faith Presbyterian Church. You know, what is it that we expect? Do we expect just the common everyday things and the same thing over and over again because like everybody else, we respect faith up to a certain point? Or do we really believe that Jesus can save people from their sins? Do we really believe that Jesus can save marriages on the rocks? Do we really believe that Jesus can work in somebody's life when they've lost their life savings because of an addiction to some sin? Do we really believe that God can save the most perverse people on the face of the earth? Do we really believe that God can cure the incurable disease? You see, this is the message of Mark. Jesus is the Lord of the wind and the sea. We live at the beach and he can stop a hurricane in motion. Jesus is Lord over the spiritual realm. Yes, there are demons in this world, but Jesus is Lord of them and he can cast them out. Jesus is Lord over physical debilitation and over even death. This is the message of the scriptures. And yet we are surprised when something happens. Even Christians struggle to believe this. He is Christ through his word and by the power of the Holy Spirit, is able to change even the hardest hearts and conquer even the greatest evils, even death itself. If you truly believe this and understand this, it can change your outlook on life. And you can have the answer 
of the hope that we have to give others that Jesus Christ, by his supernatural authority in the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, can do the amazing things. It might not happen every time we pray. It might not heal every disease. That's not God's purpose. But in his purpose, every time he designs and deigns to do these things, his word will not fail. He has unparalleled power in the universe. Let's pray as we bow again. Father, help us not only to fear this awesome power, but to answer your call. Do not fear, but trust. Lord, help us in our state of desperation, in everybody around us telling us there is chaos and destruction and all kinds of terrible things are going to happen, and in our situations that sometimes seem hopeless or are hopeless apart from your grace, we pray that we might turn to you, for you are the Lord of all things. Help us, Lord, to have even the faith of this woman who wanted to touch the garment of the Savior. We pray in Jesus' name.